Welcome to The Wizardist Podcast. I'm Paul Canetti. This is episode three. Welcome back. If you had listened to either of the first two episodes that I recorded back at the end of last year, and if so, I apologize for the gap in between episodes. Um, If this is your first, welcome. So the truth is I started the podcast in the fall of 2016, and when the election happened, I suddenly was just feeling very uninspired about the podcast about uh, writing things on wizardist.com and uh, sort of was just thinking that anything that wasn't about politics was just really not worth reading. Uh, And uh, therefore I didn't want to create content. It seems sort of um, pointless. I have since sort of come out of that uh, mindset and I'm happy to report that I have some really amazing podcast guests uh, already booked over the coming weeks and months. Today's no exception. And uh, I will also be writing much more regularly at wizardist.com. So keep an eye out for new posts, new podcasts uh, throughout the rest of the year. Today, I'm very excited to be talking with Brian Scordato. Brian is a longtime friend. He is the founder of Tacklebox Accelerator. And it's an accelerator here in New York City aimed at early stage companies. Um, And it's really the only accelerator program that I've ever heard of that specifically targets founders that are very often still at their day jobs, uh, still working full time, sort of they have this idea, they have this thing that they've been working on, you know, in the evenings, on the weekends, the sort of side hustle. And now they want to accelerate those ideas into something real. And Brian sort of takes them through a, a, a multi-week boot camp where they are getting together with other startup founders that are, you know, at the same stage in sort of the life cycle of their companies, very, very early stage. And really they figure out uh, how to take that next step. Brian had this sort of unique insight. I remember when he was first telling me about Tacklebox, which was that, you know, there are these amazing founders sort of trapped in the non-startup world. And full disclosure, my wife Jess went through Tacklebox last year with her co-founders of her new company, Milks, that is making a new kind of pumping and nursing bra for new moms that they can wear all day. And um, Tacklebox was unbelievably helpful in sort of jumpstarting their trajectory. Brian himself had founded a few startups uh, prior to to starting Tacklebox. One was Find Your Lobster, one of the very first mobile dating apps before Tinder and all the rest um, sort of came into the scene. I worked with him a bit on that project. Uh, Brian spent some time at Maz working with us on some of our consumer-facing products, helped us develop and launch uh, a web browser called StreamWeb, that then eventually morphed into a social link sharing app called Links. Uh, Brian also writes for Fast Company. Brian does a lot of things. Um, he, he wrote this article for Fast Company called Why Your Startup Will Fail, which obviously attracted a lot of attention. We sort of used that as a jumping off point for this conversation. And the reasons he gives for why startups often fail are quite different than the reasons that I think are normally cited by uh, other people in the sort of tech scene, VCs, etc. It was great to catch up with him. Uh, He just got back to New York after spending the beginning of the year out at Y Combinator with one of his alumni companies, actually a company called Claire, uh, got accepted into YC and Brian went out with them uh, and lived in San Francisco for the last three months working on that. So Claire is basically a predictive analytics company for apparel manufacturers and retailers that uses AI and machine learning to better predict uh, what's actually going to sell and what's not. Brian and I are also joined by Justin Kennedy, my brother, who's also the chief operating officer at Maz, who brought to the table some insights about, you know, actually operating a startup. And uh, the three of us had a blast 
We recorded today's session in the new studio that I'm building inside the Maz offices. So the idea is that with each episode, you should hear a steady improvement in the in the sound quality and sound production. I just bought some soundproofing stuff to put on the walls. Um, we're upgrading the mics. We're making some progress. So um, one thing we haven't figured out yet is the ventilation situation. You know, one great thing about this room is that uh, there are no windows and no vents, which is good for audio, bad for breathing and general comfort. So you will hear us uh, talking about just how insanely hot and stuffy it got in the studio. But regardless, it was a great conversation and I'm excited for you to hear it. This is Brian Scordato, founder of Tacklebox Accelerator, discussing why startups fail. You recently wrote a piece for Fast Company called Why Startups Fail. So let's just say theoretically that I didn't read it. <laughs> Why do startups fail? Um, so I think the big reason is people who haven't worked on startups before have a misunderstanding about what a good idea is. Um, and really around how to think of an idea. Um, so people generally look out in the world and say like, oh, there's a gap. There's something that should exist. Maybe it works. I use the example in the article of um, ClassPass is a thing that works. And so lots of people come to me and say, I'm going to start ClassPass for X. I use the example of meditation in uh, the article. But that's really the wrong way to, uh, to, to have a startup idea that you'll be successful with. Um, gaps in the market generally mean things that, so you're not the first person to think of this and you're not going to be the last. And there's a reason that it doesn't exist. And generally the reason is whatever the variation is. So class pass itself is right for gyms for a million reasons, a million tiny little reasons that the founder has found either through their experience with the idea or through their experience building. And to give yourself the best chance at a startup idea, it's got to be something that you've sort of subconsciously been preparing for for a long amount of time. Um, the idea is that instead of looking for startup ideas for gaps in the market, you should be looking at yourself and saying, here are things that I am amazing at. Here's something that I know better than anybody else. And let me think about that and use that as the kernel for a startup as opposed to saying like, oh, it would be cool if this existed. Um, so that's... It sort of sounds like what you're saying is the reason or an underrated reason that startups fail is the idea itself. Because I know I read a lot of stuff that's just like the number one reason startups fail is lack of capital or the number one startup fail is, you know, market size or. But you're saying people just have shitty ideas and they don't know it. I think you're doomed from the start. I think if you're going out to start class pass for meditation and you haven't run a meditation studio for five years, you don't understand B2B sales at, for small and medium-sized businesses, um, if you don't understand how to manage product to build whatever that product, whether it's an app or a website, needs to be, if you don't have a team of people that uh, around you that, that know how to do that, you're kind of screwed from day one, no matter what you do. Um, I think and this is not necessarily the most popular view, but I tend to think that things like um, tech are more commoditized than a unique insight or a unique knowledge base around a specific idea or space or customer. But like, I don't know, I'm thinking of like the founder and CEO of Uber. Like, I don't think he was ever a taxi driver. He had a good idea. Yeah, well, so I think Uber is an interesting one in that the idea was sort of probably somewhat unique, but his superpower, if you think about like, you need to have a superpower to start a startup, your superpower can be that you know more about an industry than anybody else. For him, his superpower was that he was willing to bend the rules constantly. He was willing to fight legal battles that 99.999% of people wouldn't. Do you guys listen, do you guys listen to the Daily, the New York Times podcast? Yeah. I just started listening, yeah. Nice. So they, whatever, last week they had an episode about Uber and um, I never know how to say his last name, Travis. Kalanick? 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 
Barbaro was saying it differently. I know you're saying it. I was like, oh, is that how you Travis say Travis K. Yeah. Good old Travi K. Anyway, TK. TK. So TK was like, apparently in, his, in a previous startup, he was like using tax withholdings to reinvest in the business illegally. And like, so you're saying he was an expert at like doing shady stuff. And that's what basically was his differentiator. Yeah. Yeah, probably. And he was willing to do things that like you and I certainly wouldn't have done. So that's interesting though, because that means you don't need like a, like when I think when people think about talent or expertise or sort of like what makes them unique, they're thinking about like, I'm a great like painter like something more tactile like that as opposed to the way you think about problems or the way you, the you know, your appetite for risk or like those are all talents too, I guess. Yeah. And any idea is going to have um, components of it that are core to starting that thing up. Justin, what's our superpower at Maz? I mean, I think what's, what's helped us is that we are all experts in our industry in our field and that helps us develop our products and i think i think i think those things have helped us but not everyone that's joined maz always had that expertise to begin with but they had to really have an interest in it and you know like the desire to learn the ins and outs which i think for any startup founder maybe necessarily if you, you don't have the expertise to begin with but like you have to be willing to really become an expert immediately almost. Yeah. Yeah. And actually you're right. The founding team, we were, we all had media tech backgrounds and we we're like, Oh, let's create a media tech company. And then we did. So I guess without realizing it is I had a million startup ideas, but whether consciously or unconsciously, we gravitated towards the ones that we actually knew something about. And I think also for you guys, you started in what, 2010? Um, tech was not a commodity then. I think it is now. I think you had the ability to build what you needed to build quickly. Um, you also, timing was a component. You saw that iPads were coming and that you sort of predicted a trend. Um, I think there were a lot of unique things. I think about that a lot when I talk to like aspiring startups or, or, or new startups. I, I think of it as like, you know, you need the talent, you need the, the um, you need like a, to have identified a problem in the market or a gap in the market and and have a good solution or whatever. But there's also something that I sort of think of like an enabling force or some sort of macro trend, something that has nothing to do with you that has to line up with you. So for instance, right, with us, it was iPad. It was, it was just the general rise of the app store and the idea of apps as you know, I mean, around the time we started Maz, like the leading apps were like, look, it looks like I'm drinking a beer. It wasn't like, like people didn't use apps in the same way, like the way we think about apps today. So that happened and that would have happened whether or not Maz ever started. Um, and so you need some sort of enabling trend like that, you know? Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's just timing is, can be key. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example, but I'm coming up short right now. I mean, right. but the iPad coming out, you know, is, is a good example. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that like, sometimes that just is by luck, I guess. But if you're smart enough to identify one of those trends and then think about how you sort of can intersect with that trend. Absolutely. Um, whenever I meet with startups applying for Tacklebox, I always ask three questions. So why you, why now, why at all? And why you is why are you uniquely the best person in the world to start this startup and i mean it's a really high bar but it's one you should shoot for um why now is exactly what you're saying like if you wanted to make maz four years before you couldn't have um but you could at that moment in time um and if you wait longer it'll be too late and then why it all is problem is is that what you is that a main reason why you think these kind of gaps in the market might be a problem is that because they can be fleeting in the sense that you know something that's hot today meditation i'm going all the time i'm like why isn't there a class pass for meditation i'm going all the time but i can't do it um and even for someone individually maybe the next week they're over it but maybe the overall market has shifted too so is that one of the the kind of things you see as a problem with those types definitely. of ideas definitely yeah and it, a lot of them look 
really obvious looking back. So like ClassPass looks obvious now. Um, there was that trend. ClassPass was great because people were getting into those sorts of classes like Flywheel had popped up, SoulCycle, Barry's Bootcamp, all of those became a thing. And then it was like, oh, you should figure out a way to aggregate these. You don't want to pay one off and all that. I think it's interesting also like you use the word aggregate, but like the parallels in different verticals that you wouldn't think are related. So like Netflix aggregating video content and ClassPass aggregating like workout classes, but the models are weirdly similar, you know? And so I don't know if there's like direct, you know, sort of inspiration there, but it's, it is weird to think about like what's transferable, you know? Well, it's also, it's a customer appetite thing too. So it's like Netflix made it okay for me to spend some $9, $10 a month on something that I am going to use for the foreseeable future. And Spotify did that as well. And so it makes you, it easier to understand. Yeah. Then it's like, oh, gym is the same sort of thing. I get, I get like a Spotify or a, a Netflix for gyms. Right. That. Did you guys, either of you, ever sign up for ClassPass? Mm-hmm. I found no, no. Uh, like Spotify, how you can discover new music. It's just a quick, funny stories. I found some pretty. There's some pretty cool classes on there. Didn't you like I took a parkour. I took a parkour class multiple times uh deep in bushwick do in that class where we just like jumped over obstacles and jumped on the trampoline into like a foam pit like it was like doing middle school Uh, gymnastics i was picturing you like as an adult on a rooftop (laughs) like on a rooftop speaking french no they have yeah i do that i do that separately in my free time um i was imagining it um Wait, so let's back up a minute. So this, these tackle box questions you ask, right? I mean, you must be talking to, I don't know, hundreds of startups. Like what, I, I actually think the third question is almost the most offensive, right? Because it's like, why you, someone's like, well, you know, I'm great. And that's like an, an interview question in general, right? Then it's like, why now? And again, they probably, and then the third question is like, why would, why would anyone at any time ever do this, you know? It's like the most existential sort of like, you know, like questioning. Um, So, I mean, how do people answer that question? Because if I'm understanding it right, it's not like, it's you want a different answer that does not overlap with the why you or why now. Yeah, And, and it all comes down to, so how do people answer it is usually it's a struggle. Um, and that's a big red flag. So when you, and, and that also really comes down to customers. So everyone always thinks that their idea is bigger than it is, and maybe it is down the road, but initially it needs to be small. Um, but to the question of why at all, like when you ask, when the class pass for meditation person, when I say, why does this need to exist at all? You are going to lots of meditation classes and you're fine. Like what, what, you know, people are lazy by nature, what is it that's going to be so great about this that someone's going to be like, I'm going to spend $99 a month for this thing I've never heard of. No one else that I know has ever used it. Um, it's a really hard question to answer. Uh, I saw um, um, a startup recently and I did some like guest judge thing and and it was about um, refillable water bottles, like basically setting up stations throughout the city where you can refill a water bottle and and the idea is to cut down on plastic bottles. And so on their market size slide, they had a pie graph showing how many people buy plastic water bottles every day, sort of implying that that was their market. And my feedback was, well, those people seem pretty happy to buy plastic bottles every day because they're buying plastic bottles every day. And so what makes you think that they would stop doing that and start? And I think, they're, they misjudge how easily people will change behavior and they'll be like, oh, well, someone will try this. Like, no, they won't unless there's, and this is another, another thing that people struggle with is, uh, and another question that I always ask is like, what does great look like for your customer? So like once they've used your product, what, what happens then? Like, what are they feeling? What's the end of that feedback loop? And that's gotta be something that's so good. So like, for ClassPass, it's actually pretty good. It's like, well, I didn't used to have the money to go to Barry's Bootcamp and Flywheel and SoulCycle and have be seen there and it's the trendy thing and like whatever. Now I can, that's empowering. 
I don't know if meditation has the same pitch. Is the why not cool anymore, guys? Because that's, uh, <laughs> that's where I'm at. I like the why. <laughs> They're not um, on class pass. What the hell? What are you guys trying to say? It's also, I love it. There's like <laughs> maximum two other people at the gym and they're easily over 80. It's not 20 bucks a month though, like blink. No, it's not. It's like yeah. 80 bucks a month. Yeah. But I love it. The emptiness is what I'm paying for. I, I love about blink is that like, or planet fitness is they're both like 20 bucks a month. You go in there and it's the most courteous gym goers. Cause they know like, we're only paying 20 bucks a month. Nobody's cleaning up after me. And so they keep it yeah, like there's no towels at the Y. Uh, wait, Blink is owned by Equinox, I think, by the way. Is it? Is that a thing? Uh, I have no idea. All right. Fact check. Don't know. Uh, I think if you added towels to Blink, which is honestly, I don't, you know, they don't have classes, but if you added towels, they probably could charge $50 a month. Wow. They should do the towel package. Like that's the one complaint people no, it's, say. It's, They're it's like, oh, I, go, I would go to blank, but upsell. they don't have towels. It's 20 bucks a month or it's 40 with towels or 30 with towels. Like I feel like that's an easy upsell. I I think a lot of people would pay and for it. Like, and if you want water fountains, it's another five. No towels is preposterous. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. It's a big deal for a lot of people. You got a BYOT. <laughs> uh... But then what do you do with the towel after? It's it's a mess. Well, I don't know if you remember, I used to go to Blink during my oh, lunch I break remember and I would bring back the towel and hang the disgusting <laughs> wet sandals. <laughs> and the, that's when we were at uh, Sunshine Suites. That's right. It's like a co-working space. Think of like an it, early prototype of WeWork. It closed recently. Really? Yeah. yeah I'm not surprising. Um, and we shared that tiny cubicle. Yeah, and, and you guys would hang your towels and your wet sandals <laughs> miniature cubicles. But I was saving 80 bucks a month on gym membership fees. Ugh, gross. So it's interesting, obviously, we're talking about a lot of consumer examples. Um, you know, you recently had a, had a go with B2B company, Claire, um, and just got back to New York after doing a quarter out um, at Y Combinator, which I would love to hear about in general. Obviously, you know, we do a lot of stuff with B2B. Um, Brian spent uh, almost a year, I guess, a stint with Maz a few years back when we were trying our hand at consumer uh, products when we when we launched Links and, and um, helped us through that. Um, you know, we've since returned to the, the wonderful world of B2B, but it seems like Claire was really your first exposure i mean i'm sure you've had b2b companies through tackle box but like of, that you were actually sort of operating in like i want to hear about the whole yc experience but also specifically how you found like the b2b world because i feel like a lot of things change when you're talking b2b oh yeah and they change so people come with b2b ideas or they're working on b2b ideas and there's always like one thing there's one consistent problem with all of them and it's like like i had interviews today and people were saying like well here we're gonna here are our target customers so we've got um, we're selling b2b and we're gonna sell to uh schools so like columbia nyu um, harvard mit blah 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 and i'm like well okay so who who have you spoken with at those places that would um you know potentially be buying this thing and they're like oh we haven't gotten to that yet and it's, it's interesting because I think that the speak with customers has permeated the B2C world, but it hasn't broken through B2B. People are just intimidated and they think they need so much to go speak B2B. Wasn't it harder to get those, like you want to talk to B2C people, you like just stand out on the street and talk to people. Or, you know, if you're targeting new moms, you stand out by my baby. How do you talk to B2B customers before you actually have something to pitch? It's a lot harder. Um, so I'll tell you how Claire did it. So Claire, the company that I, I worked with for a while, they were in Tacklebox and they basically showed up with an insight that, hey, J. Crew, or and not, not not just J. Crew, but all of these retailers put stuff on sale for 40 or 50% off four times a week. Like what's going on? They either don't understand inventory or don't understand pricing or something else is happening. And it's like, okay, that's an interesting insight to start with. Um, how do you know? Like, how, we're going to be, what's the product and how are you going to be selling it? Who are you going to be selling it to? 
Um, so they said, all right, well, let's figure out who makes those decisions within jCrew. And that's sort of the first step for any B2B uh, potential startup idea is like, all right, who's making these decisions and what do they use? What's their process? So that becomes tricky because to get their attention, you need to know that back to that outcome question, like what's a great outcome for them? How can you add value to whatever they're doing so that this conversation becomes more of a give and take as opposed to just a, hey, will you talk to me? Um, so they wrote and said like, hey, uh, we've spoken with a bunch of retailers and here's how they do a great job managing inventory and making good buys. And that was enough to get a foot in the door and speak with. I think the first company I spoke with was Ever Everlane. Um, but when you speak with them, you're totally right. It's a lot harder, but you still have to do it. Uh, it just becomes a lot of cold emailing, figuring out who the right people to speak with are, figuring out how to get a 15-minute coffee, figuring out what they do all day. Um, and that's that's just as crucial as speaking with your customers. Yeah. We found also that, I mean, we definitely did this early on, but even now we do when we're trying to break out into sort of new areas, new verticals, is to go in and basically get a proper sales meeting, even though we know full well we don't actually have everything we're talking about. And it's more of a fact-finding mission. And depending on the on sort of who you're meeting with, sometimes you, you say that openly, right? You're like, we're developing this new thing. We'd love to talk to you, people like you, to get insight about what you need, whatever. People are generally flattered too, I find, when you you know actually want their input. Um, but sometimes you get a response, which is like, well, come back to me and you actually have something. And then, so sometimes you have to put the carpet before the horse a little bit and say, you know, we'd love to meet. And then if you have 10 meetings like that, you'll quickly gather what people actually want, what they don't want. Um, the risk is then if someone says, great, I'll take it, you know, and then you're like, oh, um, that definitely used to happen to us. Uh, so I don't know if Claire ran into anything like that, you know, where you, you're you there on a fact-finding mission and you sort of you know, plant the seed of something you don't actually have. And someone's like, great, like, let's do that. Yeah, that happened. And that was how they decided to build the first product was they spoke with a few people. They were like, hey, this is interesting. We'd love to run a pilot. Um, here's what, and then you sort of discuss what the success criteria would be. And then you go build the thing. Um, what's interesting, though, is it, people tend to stay away from B2B because it's intimidating, but there's just like you were mentioning these fact finding calls. Like, this is a part of their business. They work with vendors. They have allotted time in their week when they're going to speak with somebody who they may or may not work with. And they're just both sides are kind of, they call it a discovery call, figuring out whether it makes sense to have another meeting or meet in person or whatever. Sure. Is there a, uh, a real equivalent when you're doing something for consumer? Because I think having these kind of discovery calls, they're, they're, they're likely to give you some real feedback, constructive feedback. And when you're building a consumer product, you're probably bringing that to your friends, to your family, who maybe you have a few people who might really give you, tell to you straight. Uh, like if your product sucks, they'll tell you, but most people are gonna That friend kind is Brian. Of, <laughs> <laughs> um, but probably a lot of people are just gonna tell you what they think you wanna hear. Um, do you think that, you know, what do you guys think there? I remember with links, like you and Carolyn would literally write emails to individual end users and be like, we want your feedback. We'll meet you for a coffee or a glass of wine if you're in New York. And, and a couple of them actually totally. took you guys up. I don't know if you ever went on those, but but I know Carolyn has a few stories of people that like end users that literally met up for a coffee or for a glass of wine and were just like floored that we would actually like that there was that there were real people behind like you know a social link sharing app at all and that let alone they would were like i'm gonna buy you a glass of rosé while we like sit here and you and walk through the app you know um but we got a lot of really good insight yeah it's amazing and and if you don't have a product you can do that too and that everyone knows they need to speak with customers um and if you go and say hey I'm making class pass for meditation. What do you think? No one's going to tell you that that's a bad idea. A much better way to go about it is say, all right, who would be a great customer for class pass for meditation? Let me talk to them and ask them about their process now. So as soon as you anchor someone to anything like I'm making this, it changes the whole conversation and it's useless. But if you're going to say, walk me through the last time that you meditated, start to finish. How'd you feel during the process? 
Um, what was difficult? What was enjoyable? How did you feel at the end? What are you going to do next time? And I've, I've always found like if you say, tell me about meditation, people will give you sort of this weird jumbled best case scenario. If you say, tell me about the last time, then they'll think about a specific time, remember details around it and walk through it. Um, and that that's sort of how you get the best information. There's, there's a great story. There's a great book called Predictably Irrational, which is helpful for if you're thinking about running customer interviews. But they talk about how they just the phrasing of a question. So they asked a group, they took a control group of people, split them in half, asked one side, how frequently do you get headaches each week? And they responded like, I get about two to three headaches per week. And they asked the other side, how infrequently do you get headaches each week? And they said they got less than one headache per week. So just like even stuff like that, just avoiding anchoring and getting true feedback from a customer is going to give you insights in your product. That's crazy. Yeah. I bet there's all sorts of stuff like that in like psychological studies where it's like the way you word the question, the affirmative or the negative or... Um, it's hot in here. How do you guys feel about cold beers? I feel pretty good about that. Fantastic. It's definitely hot. Yeah. Oh. So, yeah, man. So tell me about YC. Yeah, it was cool. It was, um, it's interesting. It's like, it's like whenever you go to some sort of, if you go to like an alumni event for Harvard Business School or something like that, not that I went there, but I would just imagine. They crash the alumni events all the yeah. time. <laughs> Um, where you're just like, everyone here is so impressive and so smart. Um, and so that, that was really cool. Um, the program itself is a lot more hands-off than I thought it would be. And that also, so I, I'm not a founder of, I wasn't a founder of Claire. So I did not go to all of the founder events. Uh, so basically they've got, they've got a dinner every Tuesday with a group of founders. I did not go to those. Got it. Where like all the companies sort of gather. Mm -hmm. So what's like the meat of it? Like what are you doing on any given day, middle of the day? So they don't have an office for you. They don't, they don't, they tell you not to get an office. They tell you to live in a house and work in that house. Um, and you're in the, YC itself is in Mountain View. Um, we were in Sunnyvale, which is a town right by there. And I mean, there is nothing to do. Yeah, yeah, all those little towns. Uh, just for the visual here, we have some nice cold Negra Maldelo, uh, the greatest beer. Uh, if you leave this and room sponsors and of the Wizard is Vodka. <laughs> uh, if you leave this room and come back in, it's even hotter. <laughs> <laughs> We're experimenting here at Mad Studios in a room that uh, we typically call the interrogation room. It's a very small closet-like room with no ventilation. So Brian was just telling me about a little bit about Y Combinator and how surprisingly unstructured it is. So, so like what's, what's the point of it? Um, so I think they're, so, so they do some things amazingly well. Uh, first of all, all of the internal tech, like they have products that only YC companies get to use, like scheduling and mentors and all that is incredible. <laughs> it's like the best made stuff I've ever seen, not, not surprisingly. Um, that you get access to just for those three months? Uh, I th think you get it forever. Oh, cool. Um, so wh what's the point, you asked? Um, the point one from their end is they're big enough now and influential enough now that they're able to invest in the best companies there are and get a great valuation. They throw you all into California. You meet in groups at these dinners and you have to give an update every week and you've got a group leader and they're pretty intense about your updates. So you have to be making really good progress and they kind of help you set like KPIs and OKRs and that sort of thing. So that's great. The thing that I thought was exceptional about YC was they have a bunch of partners who are mentors, people like Kevin Hale, Lyle Fong, just like people who you can just schedule a half hour with whenever you want, as much as you want. So there's this guy, Lyle Fong, who incredible B2B sales, nicest guy in the world, so talented. And he met with us once a week and just taught us how to sell to businesses for three months every week. This guy was just incredible. And so he taught us process from like all the way from what your outbound cold emails should look like, how many you should send. Like I figured you'd send two or three outbound cold emails before you give up. And he was like, no, you're going to get responses between emails like seven and nine. 
and like how and how do you do that without making your skin crawl and then without making people get mad at you and then how do you manage that process what do the what do the emails say like i got a great cold email recently the subject was have you been eaten by an alligator <laughs> and i opened it and it was like you know this is Rocks. my third fourth email whatever i'm sure i deleted all the rest and it was like you haven't written back i just wanted to make sure you hadn't been eaten by an alligator if you could just simply answer a I have been eaten by an alligator <laughs> or B, I have not been eaten by an alligator. Really, you know, give me peace of mind. Um, so I did write back to verify, no, I've not been eaten by an alligator. And no, I don't want whatever you're saying. <laughs> but still, I appreciated the. But that's the thing. And it's, it's really interesting. The whole thing with B2B sales was you just want to get to a point where you get an answer one way or the other. Um, and so we, we learned so much from him talking about process and the goal for any b2b company as you guys know is you want to find the person inside the people that you're selling to that's going to be your champion that will get all the praise if your product works that has influence to the people with the budget and at the end of the day if your product is great they get promoted and like figuring out who that is how to get in touch with them how to message them in the right way how to go through that process so the mentorship is incredible so you run an accelerator and here in New York, it's you know one of the better known accelerators. That, and as far as I know, the only accelerator I've ever heard of that specifically targets people with full-time jobs. Yeah. Right? So it, you know, you're not, I wouldn't consider you like a competitor to YC or Techstars or some of these other programs because you're really carving out this niche, which is like, I have this idea, I'm super, super early stage, and now I wanna like figure out like how to actually maybe make this into something, which I think is is really interesting because it's like a whole area of the startup world, almost like pre-seed or something, which is fairly like untapped as far as VCs, as far as accelerators, whatever. Um, but I would imagine it was super interesting and, and that you were sort of experiencing Y Combinator on like this meta level of taking like crazy mental notes and being like, okay, this is the most prestigious accelerator in the world. like how like what can i bring back and transfer you know um even the fact that you went and joined claire is super interesting it's almost like i don't know i'm trying to think of an analogy but it's like you know here you are like mentoring these startups and then one of them asks you to like come with them it's like being a you know like an a and r guy at a record label and someone's like hey want to like go on tour with us like and you're like oh man you like take out the old dusty guitar and you know like <laughs> things still work right so like <laughs> then when you get back to the office like what's what's different now if anything um like after going through that program yeah so i tried to soak up everything um i tried to listen to so the other thing that i didn't mention is all the other founders are obviously incredibly talented, but they, for the most part, everyone I met was super nice. And then, so what I would ask is like, how, how'd you get here? Cause I want to, I want people who leave Tacklebox to have the opportunity to go to YC later. So it's like, all right, well, talk to me about your first six months. And it was just like drilling the best companies in the world at that point on how they got there. And the answer was, always sort of the same and it was like well i was in this industry i was doing this for a really long time i did i have one or two outstanding world-class skills that are pillars for this company and i'm putting them to work and i'm the best at the world in the world for this and it was like okay well that's how these things need to go and that can sound discouraging for startups because it's like if you're a founder like what am i the best in the world at but i don't, I don't think that needs to be the case i think that you just need to sort of narrow your customer segment to get to a point where it's like, okay, for this very small group of customers, I know them better than anyone and I'll be able to build something for them and then grow from there. So when you are screening people for your program, is that sort of now more of a, are yeah. you focusing more on that first question, which is why you? Totally. And it's, so I used to get enamored by, and there's there's a great podcast called um, How They Built It. Mm. Um, and so I was listening to it the other day. I think this is a great, great sort of example of it. Um, the woman who started Drybar. Um, What's Drybar? I don't Drybar? know if you're familiar with no. it. So it's, do you know what? I don't. Um, 
And basically what they are is instead of, it's like a hair salon, except all you get is a blow dry. You just get like a, a blow dry, you get your hair blow dried. So it's more, it's actually more like a nail salon than anything else. Very specialized uh, situation. And they have just exploded. They're all over New York, all over LA. I think she mentioned they have, I forget what the number is, but hundreds of these exist now. And I hear people who give these ideas like, oh, I get my hair blow dried a lot. Um, I will, I want to start dry bar and they might have the same idea she has. And I get enamored by that because I see the potential and it, or I used to, and it seems interesting. But when you hear her backstory, you're like, oh, she's just like all these people at YC who've been preparing for this their whole life. And they were the perfect people to do this. Like she had worked at a hair salon for five or six years. She knew that industry back and forth. She got married, had a kid, was trying to like stay in touch with people. So what she did was continue. She remembered like when she was at the, the hair salon, the easiest thing was a blow dry. And it was the thing where if you get your hair like um, washed, you come out and you got wet hair and you can't really tell that it's great. Blow dry is like a big difference. You have your hair and it's not blow dried, then you have it and it's blow dried and it's like, this is awesome. So what she did is started going around to all of her friends during the day with her kids doing like a kid play date and blow drying the, the, the hair of the parent. And then they started telling friends, she started charging, she had a van, she would just like cruise around LA, going to all these places, blow drying people's hair. And people went nuts about it. It got to the point where her husband started like, he's an architect, he starts like <laughs> having to like help manage her and they're doing all this stuff. And her brother is an investor and they're like figuring out how they can start like build their first location. And they do it. And so it's like a year and a half of that, of like, Proving this concept, you're the one, you know that this thing's gonna work. And then she talks about how lucky she was because she built this first store, this first dry bar, and people were gonna go to her because she just flat out couldn't go out to all the people that wanted it. And she's like, and I was so lucky because my husband was an architect and a designer. So he was able to make the website that looked great and he was able to design the place so that, and she knew the specification. She's like, I don't want people to have mirrors. So they don't see it while it's happening. And then there's a big reveal. Um, and then she was like, and my brother was in, he had some high powered job. So he was able to finance the whole thing. I was so lucky. And it's like, no, you weren't lucky. That's the only way that this thing will happen is if all like everything's lined up and, it, and you've been preparing to do it forever. Right. So it just made me jaded against the ideas that are like, well, I'm a, I'm a banker and I really like. Uh, getting my hair blow dried, something like that. So I'm going to start this this dry bar. It's like, okay, you have, you're you going to spend all your time learning the industry, learning the nuances of it. You're going to run out of time or funding or whatever, and you're done. So like in a pitch deck, the team slide is number one for you, basically. Yeah, and like why for each person. Not right. like, oh, I can, I can you know, I'm, I'm smart. I went to business school. Like, that's great. Lots of people are I smart. I have this developer. I have this whatever. It's interesting. I mean, I've seen you on panels um like i know you've even come into my class for final projects and you know you're pretty brutal when you shoot down almost every single idea <laughs> and say things like you should definitely not do this or like you know i don't know if you watch shark tank like the way that mr wonderful is like you should take this out back and shoot it <laughs> um that's you except you do it like in a nice way where people are still like he was so nice I'm like what like he just destroyed you uh how do you end up finding companies for Tackle Box at all? Because it must, you like almost know too much where you must just meet almost everybody and be like, nope, like this is, this is not a good idea. You should not do this. You should not spend another breath on this project. Like, are there any good startup ideas left? Tons. I think um, where, where, where Tackle Box is so perfect for me is when people come in, when someone's never started a company before, and they go through the first eight months and like hire a developer and have something built. They're then anchored to that product and it's, it's almost guaranteed that they've gotten to that product wrong. And it's not their fault. There's, there, I, my first startup was a freaking disaster. So was my second. Um, it's just really hard to do unless, cause it's, it's all counterintuitive stuff. Like you need smaller customers, you need this, all, all this stuff. That, so you think you were too product focused early on? Yeah. Um, Definitely. And you should just be focused on customer and process. So when people come to me with an idea, I get excited about 
the potential for that idea because I know that the process can get them to something better. Right. I think about it a lot too, like in the dry bar example, like what is your equivalent of driving around in the van, right? Like you don't need a website. You don't need to book an appointment through an app. You don't need a physical space. You don't need a staff. Like there are people who want to get their hair blown out and you have a hair dryer. Like, so just go there and do it. You know, like uh, imagine a food delivery service. Like the MVP for that is someone calls you and says, I'm feeling lazy. Can you go to the grocery store and, and pick up some strawberries? And then you go to the grocery store and you bring them strawberries. And like, if you do that enough, it might be worth building a grocery app or something. Like, you know, I think about it a lot where like for the end user, actually the experience is pretty much the same, or at least the outcome is the same in both cases. But like in one case you need funding and a dev team and like a logistics team. And in the other case, like you need just a phone number and hands and feet, you know? Um, so I, I do think for a lot of startups that makes sense. But then are there also cases where that's just not true? Like there, there's some threshold that must be met on the product side for a customer to actually get value? Oh yeah, definitely. And I, I tend to stay away from those if the team doesn't have that person. So like whatever your differentiator is going to be, if your differentiator is going to be tech, and this is something you told me way back in the day when I was working on Find Your Lobster, um, if the differentiator is going to be tech and there's not someone tech on the team, you, know, you shouldn't be doing that idea. Um, but if the product is is more like maybe initially it can be bad. So like Instacart, it initially it didn't need to be that great. It needs. It's very logistically tricky now, um, but you could kind. Of, they could have started that without. Yeah, start super local, lo-fi, single like neighborhood. Right, you could imagine scoping it. Yeah, but if you're building like boosted board or something and uh, electric skateboard, you don't know how to do that. Well, like Find Your Lobster. So for those that don't know, Find Your Lobster was the world's greatest dating app that was sadly eclipsed by this stupid app called Tinder. Uh, and it really was, you know, we were working on that project. Um, what, what year was that? Like 2012. When, 2012. Um, you just moved back to New York. You were it's early 2012. Yeah. And... And this was before like mobile dating had hit. So for instance, I think talking about like enabling or macro trends, right? That were happening independently. Like you clearly recognize like mobile is important. Apps are important. There are all of these very successful uh, online dating sites really for desktop that maybe were available for mobile, but not like mobile first. Um, and that thesis turned out to be 100% true. I mean, obviously now there's a million of them. Um, and so the idea behind Find Your Lobster was that every day you got, what, nine lobsters, uh, which were basically, you know, potential people that you could like or not like. And then, um, so let's say I liked a lobster. I think you could like up to three of them, right? So let's say I like two lobsters today or three or whatever. Tomorrow I would appear as one of the nine in their batch. But you don't know if if any of the nine liked you or not. Like it's you know. But the idea is there's there's a tomorrow this person's either going to like me or not. And if there's a match, then it opens a thread and whatever. And um, right, I'm trying to think like what is the non-tech product version, right? Like could it be that you know you texted a user nine photos and nine names every day, and then they texted you back like. I like Justin, I like Brian, I like Paul. And then tomorrow you would, you know, text me nine names and nine pictures. And one of them is the person that liked me yesterday. And I mean, that would be a lot to manage, but you can imagine doing that over text or over email and over a Facebook, whatever it is. And like finding out like, wow, people like this. Oh, all of a sudden 50 people are doing this. A hundred people are doing this. I can't text this many people and keep track of all the matches is too much. Now I should probably build some software to handle this. Exactly. And I wish I thought of the texting thing. We did an e <laughs> right? like a chat bot. Five years later. You, <laughs> a chat bot that feeds you perspective people to date is kind of an interesting idea. Yeah. yeah. I, I used email. So or just I, a chat bot you can just date. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. I used email. So I would put, uh, it was actually pretty funny. I would send an email to one of my single friends. I would screenshot the Facebook profiles with the names blocked out of 
five of my other friends who that person didn't know and say, would you go on a date with any of these people and do the same thing sort of both ways? And if there was a match, I just send an email CCing the two of them being like, you guys are going on a date. Boom. <laughs> Old school matchmaker. Yeah. Right. And so then that answers that why at all question, like the, the dry bar thing, like why at all? Why are you building this dry bar? Well, because I can't keep running around my freaking van all day. Like I, there needs to be a place. Um, that and there's built in demand by that point. Yeah, it becomes the hardest question to the easiest question. Or the demand's always been there, but you've, you've basically proven the demand. Mm-hmm. You know. mm. I'm trying to think of all the other startup ideas that could have just been texting, like email services. Probably a lot of them, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, think about it. Even something, like I, I heard an um, interview with, uh, with the product hunt guy recently, and he, I didn't know that started as an email. Um, it was like an email list, you know, where he just like, was like, here's some products that I think are cool, you know, um, because he didn't know how to make a website and he did know how to send an email. This is something I talk about a lot um, on the design front, too, is people are always like, well, I don't know Photoshop. I don't know Sketch. I don't know Illustrator. I don't know how to code. I don't know this. I'm like, what do you know? And they're like, I don't know. I know PowerPoint. I'm like, great. Like, build your product in PowerPoint. Just something that you could then take around to potential customers and show them or have them, you know, quote unquote, use or something like don't waste six months learning some new tool so that you can get your ideas out of your head. Like if it's a paper and pencil, go for it. Um, like if you are good at email, just figure out a way to make this an email product. Like, like I guess uh, similarly to, to use the to use sort of what you got, you know, um, I think the sooner you can get the idea out of your head into the hands of potential customers, the, the sooner you learn. And a lot of people, I guess, waste a lot of time sort of in that, like, I'm deep underground. This is a secret. No one can know about it. We're not ready to launch yet. And you could do that for months or I've seen years before you start soliciting any feedback. And by the time you get there, you know, you're already so deep in, it's very hard to backtrack. A lot of people are afraid <clears throat> to do that, to, to put it out there. Um, but I agree with you. I think getting that proof of concept is not always easy and not always attainable, but like for the dry bar, uh, ultimately is what really probably pushed them to keep going yeah. and would push anyone to keep going. And that, that is such a good point. And that's something that I go, that I, I try to really do at Tacklebox is like the take, taking it personally thing where it's like people are nervous or afraid that their idea might not work. So they don't tell anyone about it or they don't speak with customers. Um, that's ridiculous. Um, I, I, don't, I don't understand how we've started connecting a startup idea to like your purpose as a human being. And like if your startup idea isn't good or people don't want it, like you're a failed person or a failed entrepreneur um, at Tacklebox the first day I always talk about how your idea like you ever play that old game operation where you like couldn't touch the yeah, walls sure. <laughs> so I'm like your, your idea is that person on the table and we're all sort of standing out we're the doctors we're the op- we're operating on this person this idea is not you it's just an idea and we're trying to figure out whether people want it or not and if they want it great it'll come to life if not Okay, move on. You lost the game. Fine. Like, what's your next idea? Right. And it's not that they don't want you. Yeah, exactly. It's it's that. Okay, so I'm going to challenge you a little bit though, because if you're telling me that all the great startup ideas are deeply intertwined with someone's history, who they are, their expertise, their talent, their skills, how do you not take it personally? No, and how do you just say like, oh, well, actually, that idea, which is deeply tied up with your entire life, you lost that one. But now just pick a different idea that is completely tied up into your life. Like that's how many ideas can any one human have that are like so deeply tied to them personally? It's a big time do as I say, not as I do thing, because after Find Your Lobster, I curled up in my parents' basement for six months and didn't leave. But uh, not really. And you still haven't shaved the beard. (laughs) Um, No, it's tough. And I don't think that I think it's more about. It's not that the, it's like that specific iteration of the idea failed. So it's like, okay, we want to make, we're, we know that people want to blow dry their hair more than they do. They want a, a place to do just that. Fine. Maybe they had started a service where 
salon people in, in who were able to do that drove around and tried to like do that and people didn't want to do that so that iteration of it failed the insight is still good and it's trying to figure out which how the best way to solve that problem is or maybe you change the customer but isn't aren't there times when it's just like actually you shouldn't try to solve that problem anymore sure like, that's not a good problem to solve it's not a big enough problem to solve nobody has that problem yeah that's i mean that's there's a great book by seth godin called the dip and he talks about how any product, you sort of, you get some momentum early on. That's when you're telling the right people about it. And they're like, oh, this is cool. You should do that. And then you go into this dip of building. And no one's buying it. No one's interested. It's it's really tough. And you have to sort of self-motivate. It's the hardest thing an entrepreneur does, as I'm sure you guys know. And then at some point, hopefully you come out of it. But there are, op- there are chances. There's a chance you're just never going to come out of that. And it's just the wrong product or the customers don't want it. How long are you supposed to stay in the dip? That the book does a good job of talking about that, but still doesn't answer it. Um, yeah, it seems like. How do you know if you're in a dip or if you're just in like a death spiral? Yeah, because you hear stories about like, oh, Airbnb w- took nine years or whatever, and it's right, like, or they were you know one week away from g- going bankrupt, and that's when you know. Yeah. Uh, right. Those sorts of things happen all the time. I don't know. I think it just comes back to those three questions, like why you, why now, why at all? If you have a really good answer to those and you believe in them, keep going, I guess. Um, And I do think sometimes you see entrepreneurs that if they're lucky enough to have multiple companies, whether failed or successful, you start to see through lines, right? Like themes, Um, you know, like I'm thinking of like, whatever, like Ev Williams, right? With Blogger and Twitter and medium, like they're all, you know, sort of written communication tools, democratizing, you know, language and and distribution of ideas, even though they're all different products and they were built at different times. Obviously he's a genius because they're all successful. Um, but, But you can sort of see that like, there's something about him, that that human being that is searching for this like sort of theme, you know? Um, and so I do think sometimes you, you find that in yourself where, right, maybe that first idea or that first thing wasn't it, but there's, there's still things within that family or that theme of ideas that are worth pursuing. Um, but then I, I do legitimately think that sometimes you also sort of, um, you believe that it's worth pursuing because you want it, but it might not be that there are enough people or anybody that is like you in that regard, you know? And, and I often talk to people about just getting real data um, and not just saying things like, well, I always do this, or like, I wish there was an easier way to book meditation classes or whatever. Like, okay, that's great. Now the real question is, are there other people like you? Yes or no? Um, I think people have a really hard time with that. Um, I mean, in all different disciplines, it's like, you know, Freud turns out based most of his research on just how he felt, you know, uh, super weird with the mom thing. Who wants to admit that? <laughs> uh, and I, I feel like that happens in all different industries in all different ways, but I, I definitely see startups falling into that trap where you become so blinded because you actually do want this solved for yourself, but like, it turns out you're the only one. I completely agree. This, I feel like this is uh, something you touched upon in your Fast Company article where it's the hush idea. Uh, and what you really need to do is, is get out there and talk to people and tell people about it and see if other people are in the same boat as you or if they are completely not at all. Um, because if you don't explore that and really find out what other people are doing, maybe you can, I didn't explain what the hush idea is for, um, people who haven't read the article. Um, so you can touch on that. Um, but it's really about getting out there and, and, and having people confirm what you already think. Exactly. And that's, that's, so the, the idea is that there, I get pitched ideas pretty frequently where people will be sort of whispering to me at a coffee shop and they they're basically saying that if anyone else hears this idea they're in trouble because they'll just build it instead of them and 
that basically means that you are not the right person to be starting this thing. It's also such a ridiculous idea. Like, all right, I don't know. Let's say your idea is a beer delivery app, right? Um, and so you're like, okay, like, here's the thing. Like, I don't want anyone else to build this. And it's like, are you out of your mind? Do you know how hard it would be to build a beer delivery system? You think this guy sitting at the table next to us is going <laughs> to hear your idea spontaneously, quit his job, decide to start a company, incorporate a company, get investment, you know, learn all about beer and delivery logistics, build iOS and Android and web apps and steal this idea from you and beat you to the market. Like that guy's just drinking his coffee. He doesn't give yeah. a shit about your idea. <laughs> like you could yell it from the streets. You could take out a full page ad in the New York Times. I'm starting a beer delivery app. Everyone would be like, okay, I'm just living my life. Good for yeah. you. Yeah. It's insane. I don't understand that instinct at all. It's it's unbelievable. And the what they should really be doing, and I think this kind of gets to the dip question as well, and what you were saying about how maybe you want it, but does anyone else? You want to say, like, people, the mistake people make is they say, all right, I'm going to make this, and it's going to be, here's how big the market's going to be. We're going to have everyone who wants a beer in New York City is going to be able to order a beer. And that's a $5 billion opportunity or whatever. Don't do that. Figure out the absolute smallest number of people that you can give an incredible experience to who really need a beer right now. So like, I don't know who that is, but there's got to be a group people of people. in a boiling hot yeah. ventilationless so like, podcast I, studio. I would kill for it, and they can't leave. And it's like, okay, how can you build something non-technical that proves that you know some audience so well that you can give them something that is like crappily built and not technical and manual and they still love it and love you. And if you can do that, then maybe you've got something on your hands and you figure out how to potentially automate it and scale it and whatever. And Paul Graham writes about that all the time, the do stuff that's that's not scalable. And that's sort of your opportunity to prove that you know what people actually want. Yeah. And I think it's much better to solve that like 100% yeah. for that one customer, that small group of customers, than to solve it like 75% for a larger group. And I think people make that mistake because generally people don't like to use things that only get them 75% or even 99%. The idea is get some group of people to 100 or past 100 if you can, you know, just blow them completely away and then if you're able to do that, you figure out, okay, well now who else can I sort of, how can I modify this and get more and more people into my 100% bucket, um, you know, and, and going really sort of like narrow and deep instead of wide and shallow, um, you know, which again is a little counterintuitive because you talk to a VC and they're like, well, how, who's the market for this? And you're like, it's five idiots recording podcasts <laughs> in a closet. And they're like, well, that market's too small. And you're like, but they love this product, you know? Um, and so, but that, I do think you have to start there. Yeah. There's a great article called A Thousand True Fans by Kevin Kelly. And he talks about how you can be, if you have a thousand people who really love you, who will like be, if you're a writer, say, and every time you write an article, they read it. Every time you write a book, they buy it. He did the math and all you need is a thousand people to love you for you to be a very, live very, very comfortably. Um, and that's sort of the same thing with the product. You got to find people that love you. And then once they love you, it'll be easier to get the next group because then there's some precedent for it. First group of Tacklebox was impossible because nobody knew who I was. Nobody knew what the program was about. And I was like, all right, let me, let me find the people who need to do who have a startup idea they're so passionate about that they need to do something about it but they can't and they're in a job and they can't quit that job and so it's like all right let's get smaller and smaller let's create more circles to create this weird venn diagram of people who have a startup idea have never started an idea before don't have a technical co-founder have a full-time job they can't quit can show up in new york city seven and nine and then it's like okay i know who these people are i can get seven of them and give them a great experience and the next time i'll get a few more and a few more and yeah that's pretty niche yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's like you know when you're on one of those like hotel sites or something and there's like check marks for each like amenity and you just keep checking them <laughs> and it's like 100 results 20 results three results like you know it's amazing that, that you can get any doll but it's, it's it's almost like that's the game right it's like how many boxes can you check where there's still some people left and then go get go for those people because you know a lot about them you know 
Um, and, and those customers are, are less ambiguous and less diversified. So you don't have to play the lowest common denominator. You can like give them a one for one match of you are exactly this type of person. And I have something that is a perfect match for you. It's not sort of a watered down version that's pretty good for you and pretty good for a bunch of other people. Yeah, I mean, it, and you talk about product all the time. It's sort of, it makes your product decisions so easy. So for Find Your Lobster, it was very broad. And so it was like, okay, well, I need to make sure that I have it for people who just graduated college and for people who are divorced recently and for all the, and then your feature sets become kind of bland and they're for nobody. Yes. Um, whereas if you're building it, if I was like, all right, I'm, and I think I told you about this, we wound up building a test site just for ex-college athletes to date. It was the easiest product I've ever built because it's like, okay, well, what do ex-college athletes want to do on their first date? They want to do something athletic. Like it's every feature is so easy and then it feels like it was built just for them. Right. And that's, that's the way to start. I like that, that if you build something for everyone, it's actually like ends up coming full circle and it's basically for no one. Yeah. I mean, it's how Facebook started. Just Harvard students, right? just yeah. college students, and they expand. And right. that, yeah. there's a lot to learn about that customer group. It was a, so a very cohesive customer group. They all spoke with each other, so there wasn't a, very much of a need for marketing or anything like that. It was an influential customer group, so as soon as they had them, it was easy to get the rest of the Ivy League. Um, it was an active customer group that had a real need for the product. Like it was perfect. And it's interesting because if you look at Facebook today, it is for everyone and it is fairly, you know, generic. And that's why you see services like Instagram, which of course now, you know, Facebook smartly uh, acquired, but, or WhatsApp or Snapchat or these, these things that are, instead of being everything to everyone, they are just some things to some people. Um, and then of course, you know, we've been talking today just about how to get an idea off the ground. I think the hard part is when you're actually successful, how do you scale up without watering down the experience? And that's, you know, obviously a conversation for another time. But um, but to your point, if Facebook launched like this today, it would fail in a week. Like if they were like, okay, it's for anyone. I hope anyone- and it does everything. Yeah, I hope right. that some people connect and like, no, I needed to start with Harvard so that everyone had friends and go from there. Yeah. Um, well, I, uh, I think that we should probably go breathe air and <laughs> rehydrate. Um, I feel like I was yelling the whole time. I don't know. Only I'm very passionate about this stuff. Yeah. Uh, the, the room has a little bit of an echo. Yeah. So uh, you also were yelling, but, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> very self-conscious about that. Well, now. thanks for joining us here in the sweat box. Uh, thanks for having me. This is awesome. This is, um, super cool. Yeah, let's let's do it again. Sweet. Hey, so if you liked that episode, please consider rating and or reviewing the podcast on iTunes or Google Play. If you have friends that you think might like it, consider sharing on social media or just texting a link to somebody. I'm also very open to feedback. Obviously, I am new at the whole podcasting thing, so feel free to get in touch. I'm on Twitter at Paul Canetti, and uh, hopefully we'll see you next time. Bye.